So, uh, good evening, everyone. And uh, can you hear me okay? It's not up to me. So, that's. So, um, I wel welcome everyone. And uh, I was looking forward to this event quite a bit, but I wasn't anticipating the level of joy that would be in the room beforehand. It feels like a little. little festive here, and seeing all of you and many people we know, and, and um, so I was very happy just to kind of be in this room together with all of you, watching you all talking warmly. And uh, what brings us together for this festive event is Joseph coming, Joseph Goldstein coming here to talk to us. And um, what she's done periodically over the years, come to Palo Alto and talk, but um, we needed a bigger room this time. Um, the American Vipassana movement has been in this country about 25 years. Uh, some people would say a little bit longer. I got involved uh, somewhere around the mid-80s, 84, 85. And I'd been involved with Buddhist practice for many years in America before that. And didn't really, wasn't really aware of the slow, and what seemed to be slow and gradual growth of the American Vipassana movement until I started to be part of it. And my impression was that it was something relatively low-key. It wasn't this big evangelistic movement. It kind of started, uh, had a lot to do with the center in Barrie, Massachusetts that Joseph was a co-founder for. And slowly, the strength of what they were teaching there and the strength of the practice kind of spread out and rippled out kind of quietly at first in much of American culture. In a way, I think that is quite surprising to people who start looking into the, the great influence that uh, Joseph and the other early Vipassana teachers have had in this culture. Um, I think of Joseph as one of the great pioneers of Buddhism in America. He went to India in the 60s uh, to study uh, Vipassana meditation with uh, Manindra and other Indian teachers and dedicated himself to the practice to a great degree. Went back repeatedly and practiced for a long time. And then at a, quite a uh, ripe early age, I doubt he was uh, barely 30, barely 25, just 30, just 30. He didn't have any gray hair yet. And um, he started teaching. And, uh, and uh, his teaching has influenced many, many people. One of the qualities that uh, I, have, I respect a lot in Joseph is that not only does he have great practice and great wisdom, but he has continued to practice. Some people become teachers and then stop practicing. But Joseph continues to practice quite seriously and intensely, um, not just in the Vipassana tradition, but he's explored other Buddhist traditions also. And in exploring all these traditions, uh, I think of him as one of the of, uh, leaders in this country who's trying to formulate an understanding, um, kind of a Western understanding of uh, the Asian Buddhist tradition, to try to make sense of it as all these different traditions uh, meet and uh, converge and, and offer the various practices here in this country. And it's very exciting to me that there's someone like Joseph here in this country who is not only teaching, but also continue to practice and explore and be a, be a kind of pioneer in, uh, in many different ways. It's a particular privilege for me to be able to introduce him because I think of Joseph as one of my teachers. I studied uh, on retreat with Joseph and I still hold him up as one of my teachers. And, um, and since I'm a, I'm a kind of a Vipassana teacher in this community, it's, a, it's quite special to be able to introduce you to my teacher. Um, 
Joseph has come this time as a benefit for the Sati Center, and the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies was started about three, four years ago in order to be able to offer a little bit more of a scholarly study of uh, Buddhism. Um, the, uh, uh, there's been a lot of opportunities now for doing meditation practice and being on retreats, and um, we felt there was a need here on the West Coast to be able to let people a little bit further and a little bit deeper in the teachings than they can do um, uh, in the kind of Dharma talks that happen on retreats, studying sutras, studying the discourses of the Buddha, and studying different aspects. And we feel very privileged in that Joseph has agreed to come and do this benefit for the Sati Center in its uh, early stages as it grows. For those of you who might be relatively new to all this, uh, we also have a uh, large sitting group in Palo Alto uh, called the Insight Meditation Center, uh, which is uh, kind of a sibling to the Sati Center. And uh, if you want to learn more about that, there's some flyers on the tables in the back where you can talk to me about the opportunities for Introduction to be possible here in this community. Um, so that's probably enough. I think many of you know who Joseph is, and I feel again it's a great, great privilege that someone with so much um, sincerity of heart and so much gener generosity uh, in offering the teachings and the opportunities to practice has come with his generosity, sincerity, and wisdom to our community. So um, thank you, Joseph, and welcome. I'd like to thank Gil for that kind introduction. Uh, I thought we could begin this evening with a short meditation, just as a way of settling in and collecting oneself. For those of you who have not meditated before, I'll guide you through some very simple instructions. Does the sound seem okay? It's not too loud? Maybe if it could be lowered a little bit. No? <laughs> the back says no. Okay. So if you take a comfortable seat where you're sitting uh, reasonably straight, you're not too slouched down in these rather comfortable seats, uh, be best if your legs aren't crossed but are both flat on the ground hands in any comfortable position, letting your eyes close gently, beginning to listen simply to the sounds in the room, the sound of my voice, background sounds, simply listening. not thinking about what's making the sound. But simply being open to the vibration of hearing. Staying very relaxed, open. Letting all the sounds appear and disappear. Being as attentive 
as if you were listening to your favorite piece of music. Relaxing back into the open awareness of sound, letting them all come and go. Slowly begin to be aware of the feeling of each breath as it comes into the body and as it leaves. Let the breath be natural without forcing. Simply feel each breath in and out. Begin to notice where in the body you feel the breath most clearly. You feel it at the nose, the air passing the nostrils. You feel the movement of the chest, of the abdomen. Pay attention to the feeling of each breath. Noticing where you feel it. without forcing, without straining. Notice when the mind wanders away from the breath into thoughts or images, daydreaming. And as soon as you're aware that you're lost in thought, simply begin again, reconnecting with the breath.
aware of all the sounds as they appear and disappear. Feeling the sensations of each breath as it comes in and goes out. Notice when the mind wanders and gently come back to the breath. how carefully you can feel the sensations of each breath, the subtleties and nuances of the in-breath, of the out-breath.
last few minutes of the sitting. See how carefully you can feel each breath. Letting the breath be natural and unforced. Keeping the mind concentrated, focused. Noticing when it wanders. Simply coming back again, beginning again. I'd like to very much express my appreciation to Gil and to the people of the Sati Center for arranging this. It takes a lot of behind-the-scenes work to put these events together, and it's wonderful when people just offer their time and the energy to make it happen. So much appreciation to all of you. This period of time is somewhat special. You know, we've just gone through the new year, the turn of the century, the turn of the millennium. And as I was thinking about all this, given that this is a time of year where we often make different kinds of New Year's resolutions. Next year I'm going to exercise more. I'm going to eat less. I'm going to meditate every day. Now we, we take on some resolve or some self-improvement. But given the specialness of this particular New Year, I was thinking about what would be the ultimate New Year's resolution. You know, what would be a resolution that could inspire us for the next thousand years? 
There is one aspiration of the heart that really is so vast and so noble that it's worthy to mark this transition in time. And we all know, of course, that our calendar and every other calendar is simply a mental concept. And for many people in the world, the year 2000 doesn't have any special significance. Still within our culture and within our society, I think we can bring our imagination, bring our vision, to give import, to bring meaning to it, and to inspire us in a certain way. There is one aspiration that leads us from time to timelessness. There's an aspiration that leads us from death to what the Buddha called the deathless, or what's beyond the cycle of birth and death. There's one aspiration that brings us from the feeling of separation, feeling separate and isolated, to the feeling of being interconnected. And this aspiration in Buddhism is called bodhicitta. And bodhicitta is a word in Sanskrit and in Pali. Bodhi means wisdom, awakening, enlightenment. Jitta means heart or mind. So bodhicitta together refers to the awakened heart or the enlightened mind. In many Asian languages, the word for heart and mind is the same. And so when we hear this, we don't want to think of these as being separate, that our mind is in our head and our heart is in our body. In Buddhism, we want to think of the heart-mind as a unity. So bodhicitta literally means the awakened, liberated, enlightened heart-mind. And more specifically, it means that aspiration, that deep aspiration, to awaken from the dream of our ignorance, the dream of our delusion, for the welfare and benefit of all beings. That's the meaning of bodhicitta. It's the dedication of our spiritual practice, our meditation practice, and even more, it's the dedication of our lives to the welfare, the happiness, the benefit of all others. So tonight I'd like to explore, on a somewhat deeper level, the meaning and the application, the practice, of bodhicitta awakened heart-mind. And we can explore it on two levels, two levels of understanding which run throughout the Buddhist teachings. And it's the exploration or the investigation of what are called the relative and absolute levels of all our experience. 
We can understand things in a relative way and we can understand things in a more absolute way. The relative level of bodhicitta is compassion, is compassionate action. It's that very deep feeling of wanting to help alleviate the suffering of beings. And we call it the relative level because it's working on the level of separate beings, of individuals, of self and other. That's the domain in which compassion works. Relative bodhicitta, the relative level of the awakened heart-mind, is the understanding that compassion and compassionate action arises from our willingness to come close to suffering. Come close to our own suffering, come close to the suffering of others. This is a very difficult practice. We may have the idea that we are compassionate people and we may really feel genuine compassion. But as we explore the meaning of it in deeper and deeper ways and see that what it entails is a willingness to come close to the pain and difficulty in the world, we see that this is not an easy thing to do. Just as we don't particularly like to open to our own pain, we often don't like to open to the pain of others. Why? Because it's painful. And so there's a tendency in the mind to pull back. There are very strong tendencies to become defended in the face of suffering so that we don't have to feel it. Or sometimes we become aggressive in the face of it. We strike out so that we don't have to feel it. And perhaps most often we become apathetic or we become indifferent to it. I'd like to read a poem by Mary Oliver who is a most wonderful poet just about this situation and it seems quite universal. Of course, the setting of this poem is not particular to this locality, but I think you can imagine it. It's called Beyond the Snow Belt. So just imagine yourselves for a moment in snow country. Over the local stations, one by one, announcers list disasters like dark poems that always happen in the skull of winter. But once, once again, the storm has passed us by. Lovely and moderate, the snow lies down while shouting children hurry back to play. And scarved and smiling citizens once more sweep down their easy paths of pride and welcome. And what else might we do? Let us be truthful. Two counties north, the storm has taken lives. 
Two counties north to us is far away. A land of trees, a wing upon a map, a wild place never visited. So we forget with ease each far mortality. Peacefully from our frozen yards we watch our children running on the mild white hills. This is the landscape that we understand. Until the principle of things takes root, how shall examples move us from our calm? I do not say that it is not a fault. I only say, except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land. I only say, except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land. So the question then becomes, how can we begin to practice loving those who live two counties north or three countries south? or all those beings who live across the oceans? How can we open ourselves to the commonality of the human experience? It's clear that we need to start right here with ourselves. In meditation practice and in our life experience, we need to practice being willing to open to the full range of experience, what the Chinese Taoists called the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. Can we be open? Can we let things in? It might be physical pain. It might be the difficulty of disease or illness. It might be emotional or psychological pain. If we stay defended, if we stay closed, we keep closed the wellspring of compassion. There are so many examples of this, both trivial and profound. Years ago, when I was practicing in India, as you know, during the summer months, the plains of India get very, very hot. And so this one year, friends and I decided to go up to Kashmir and rent a little cottage and continue our practice there. Now getting up to Kashmir entailed one of these interminably long Indian bus rides, like 17 hours or so. The buses were very crowded, very hot, seats very close together, I'm very tall, so I'm on this hugely crowded bus with the thought of a 17-hour trip ahead of me, and I was sitting right up front, I'm not quite sure what you call it, the crankcase, you know, right, right over the engine, and so all the fumes were coming up in the heat. And I thought to myself, no, I'm not gonna make this. So I had this strategy, I'm gonna stay with my breath. I'm going to lock my mind onto my breath and just stay there for 17 hours <laughs> and try to keep everything out because it was unpleasant from every side. 
So the first hour or two I'm doing that, I'm just sitting there and I'm really concentrating in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out, and out. But after about, I don't know how long it was, an hour and a half or two hours or three hours, I was exhausted. You know, because I was putting all of this energy and effort into just staying on my breath and keeping out the whole unpleasantness of the trip. Well, after you know, these hours of doing this, I had a certain kind of epiphany. And I realized this is not the way. I was just making myself more and more tense. And instead of trying to keep everything out, I thought, what would happen if I let everything in? And it was amazing. As soon as I could relax and open up and not be so afraid of the unpleasantness, and it was unpleasant, but if I could relax and open and just let the sounds and the smell and the tense sensations in the body and all of it, when I could let it in and just flow with it and let it wash through, it was not a problem. And the trip went fine. And it was just one of those lessons where suddenly things get turned around. Our practice is to learn how to let things in. The willingness to feel them, even when they're painful, even when they're difficult, whether it's pain or discomfort in the body or in the mind or in the emotions or in our life situations. Can we let it in? Can we be accepting? This is the great power of mindfulness, of awareness. We train ourselves to be present, to be open, without drowning, without getting lost, without getting totally identified with what's going on. We're simply there, we're simply present. And this is the great gift of mindfulness training. Some years ago, I was on a whitewater rafting trip up in Idaho. It was on the Snake River, the Salmon River. And this was the first rafting trip I had ever been on. And we were a group of people, friends in some rafts. And along with the main raft that we were in, they had this kind of small inflatable kayak. It was kind of like a big bathtub toy. You know, it was just something you inflate and you play around in the water with. I was very inexperienced, but I thought it looked like fun, so I'll just play in this little kayak. So I get in and going down the river, and at a certain point, I hear the guide shouting to me, watch out for the hole. I had no idea what he was talking about. a hole in a river. <laughs> so because I didn't know what he was talking about, I ignored him. And lo and behold, for those of you who also don't know, a hole in a river happens when the water goes over a rock in a certain way and at the other end of the rock there's like a little whirlpool you know, that's formed and you get pulled down into it. Well, I'm in this little bathtub inflatable kayak going over this rock into the hole. And it was quite one of those moments. I was pulled down under the water and the 
whirlpool was pulling me down, but of course I was wearing a life vest, and I could feel the life jacket push me up to the surface again. But it was so strong that it pulled me down again, you know, under the water, and then again the life jacket pushed me up. So of course it only took all of this, you know, some moments, but it was intense. But I became very appreciative of the power of the life jacket. <laughs> well, in a very analogous way, mindfulness is that life jacket. You know, as we're white water rafting on the river of life, we fall in a lot of holes. We get caught up a lot in different situations. If we can be mindful, if we can be aware, if we can be present, if we can be open, instead of either getting lost in it and totally drowning in it, on the one hand, or on the other hand, getting so defended against it that we close ourselves off, if we can simply be mindful, be present, then there's a real possibility for connection. And it's out of that connection that compassion arises. The quality of right effort here is not about striving. It's not about struggling. The right effort is really about being present, being aware. It's the quality of courage. You know, courage, the word actually comes from the word for heart. In French or Latin, cour. Courage means strength of heart. The willingness, the courage, the strength to be present. So that's what we practice. That's what our meditation practice is. That's what our life practice is. It's a wonderful example of this kind of courage that's not dramatic. It's very simple, a very simple willingness <coughs> to be in the moment. The story of Thoreau when he was dying. I don't know if you remember from <coughs> your high school encounters with Thoreau, but he died quite young. He was in his 40s. He was an amazing person. In recent years, I've had the occasion to go back and reread you know, Walden and some other of his books, and they're really wonderful. And this quality of humanity is so strong. Tremendous wisdom. <coughs> this was written in a book about his life, describing his death. I think he died of TB. Henry was never affected, never reached by his illness. Very often I have heard him tell his visitors that he enjoyed existence as well as ever. This is as he was sick and dying. He remarked to me that there was as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health. The mind always conforming to the condition of the body. The thought of death, he said, could not begin to trouble him. None of his friends seemed to realize how very ill he was, so full of life and good cheer did he seem. 
Our one friend, as if way of, by way of consolation, said to him, Well, Mr. Thoreau, we must all go. Henry replied, When I was a very little boy, I learned that I must die, and I set that down. So, of course, I am not disappointed now. Death is as near to you as it is to me. Some of his more orthodox friends and relatives tried to prepare him for death, but with little satisfaction to themselves. When his aunt Louisa asked him if he had made his peace with God, he answered, I did not know we had ever quarreled, aunt. <laughs> then I spoke to him only once more and cannot remember my exact words. But I think my question was substantially this. You seem so near the brink of the dark river that I almost wonder how the opposite shore may appear to you. Then he answered, one world at a time. Remarkable, remarkable wisdom. Remarkable sense of peace, of equanimity, all coming from that willingness, that courage, that strength of heart to simply be present to be present with the experience, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. As we learn to open to our own suffering, to our own pain, with courage, with insight, with wisdom, then we have the strength and we have the courage to open to the pain of others, to the suffering of others. And this happens on different levels. You know, as we begin to feel for the suffering of others, at first it may be the feeling of empathy, you know, where we manage to stop the rush of our lives for a few moments and actually be present with somebody, giving ourselves the opportunity to feel what they're feeling. And this is the quality of empathy, of empathetic understanding. And it's a tremendous beginning. But there's a further step. Because it's not only, I think, a question of empathy, which is the foundation, but the further step is the feeling of compassion. Empathy is feeling the pain or the difficulty or the suffering of others. Compassion is not simply that feeling. Compassion contains within it the motivation to act. Compassion takes it a step further. We open to the suffering that's there, and it touches us so deeply. We allow it to touch us so deeply that it stirs that movement that question, how can I help alleviate this? Thich Nhat Hanh had a wonderful way of expressing this. He said, compassion is a verb. Not simply the feeling, it's the motivation that, what can I do to help in this situation? An interesting experiment to do just as part of our practice in our life. 
as we go through the day, just our ordinary daily life, to really watch for those times when we meet suffering in one form or another, whether it's our own or somebody else's, and to pay attention to what our response is in those many moments. And it doesn't have to be some big dramatic suffering. It can be something quite ordinary or small. But can we learn or begin to learn to pay whatever way is appropriate to the situation, whatever way is possible for us. Now, there are so many examples and stories of people who are willing to come close to suffering and then move to act and to alleviate it. And sometimes it's in very small ways, unremarkable ways. Now, it might be simply a question of becoming kinder to the people we're living with instead of reactive to the difficult times. Practicing being kinder, more generous, more forgiving. It can be in very simple, ordinary ways that we practice opening our hearts. And sometimes it's in very dramatic ways, very courageous ways, where people face enormous difficulties and respond. You know, of the many, many examples of this, one that comes to mind, and I became aware of this through a documentary video about the life of Oscar Romero, who, as you may know, was the Archbishop in El Salvador during the Civil War there. And it was, if you remember, a tremendously violent civil war with tremendous suffering involved. And at first, as this documentary was chronicling his life, he was simply part of the establishment, very much shielded from what was going on. 
So he was living in this very cloistered, protected environment, just part of the ruling establishment of the country. And then through a whole series of circumstances, he became more aware of the tremendous violence and suffering that was going on in the country. And the very ordinary people, the masses of people. And as he learned more, the transformation in him, as he became more willing to let that in rather than keeping it out, he became this great voice for nonviolence and reconciliation and justice. And in the end, he was assassinated because of that. And it was such an incredibly moving story of somebody moving from that place of being closed and defended to being open, to being willing to see, to feel what's actually there. And of course, that is the great move of compassion, of compassionate action. We could say of relative bodhicitta. I think it's important to remember that there's no particular prescription for what we should be doing. You know, sometimes we create just these very grandiose notions of, yes, I should be like him. But there's no particular prescription. We will each follow our own interests, our own inclinations, our own abilities, our own circumstances. There's no hierarchy of compassionate action. It's not that something, because it's very dramatic, is more compassionate than something that is very small. We each need to find our own way. It may be taking direct political, social, environmental action. It may mean living a life of seclusion in a cave with the motivation that we're doing that, we're purifying ourselves for the benefit of all. That could be equally compassionate. It's a wonderful uh, saying of Pascal. He said, most of the problems in the world would be solved if people could learn to sit quietly in a room. I actually was thinking of that as we began this evening and we were all just sitting together in silence. And it was so inspiring to me that here we are, several hundred people gathered together in a time of just sitting together in silence. It's tremendously powerful. A lot comes out of that space. The field of compassionate action is limitless because it is, it is the field of suffering beings. And so we can each find our way to respond to this. And we practice from two sides. Because it always comes back to practice. You know, we can hear all about this and think, yeah, that sounds good and it's inspiring or not. But unless we translate it, into some actual practice in our lives, it doesn't work its transformation. So the question then is, how can we practice developing 
this quality of bodhicitta. One way was described very clearly in the Buddhist text where he said, we take care of others by taking care of ourselves. And taking care here means purifying ourselves, purifying our minds, our hearts of greed, of hatred, of ignorance. And it's like two people being stuck in the mud. It's very hard if both people are sinking in the mud for one to help the other. But if one of those people actually gets a foot on some firm ground, then it becomes easy for them to help pull the other out. So when we do the work of meditation or other purifying practices, we are actually doing that, can do that, for the benefit of all. Sometimes people come and say, you know, meditation seems so selfish. You're just kind of sitting there and you're not doing anything for anybody. I got those letters a lot in my early days of practice in India, you know, from different relatives. (laughs) But really, I was trying to get a foot on some dry land. So we need to do that, and we shouldn't undervalue the importance of that as being ultimately of benefit to everyone else. Because as we become less self-centered, automatically we start acting from a place of greater generosity, greater love, greater kindness. It happens by itself. So this is one perspective, one way of practicing bodhicitta, purifying our own hearts and minds. We can also practice from another side. And this was expressed very beautifully by one of the great Buddhist Indian sages and adepts, Shantideva. He wrote this very famous book, The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And a bodhisattva is a being dedicated to helping others. So this whole manual is the guide to the bodhisattva's way of life. And this book, Shantideva, is one of the great inspirations for the Dalai Lama who, of course, is a shining example of this. And Shantideva puts forth the perspective that we can practice compassion, practice bodhicitta, by the practice of putting others before ourselves, by thinking of others as being more important than ourselves. And we practice relating in that way. There's a wonderful line from a 17th century Zen master, his name is Bankai. He said, don't side with yourself. It'd be very interesting to really watch through the course of the day in our interactions with people, how many of our interactions are based from a position of siding with ourselves. So I'd like to read the alternative to that. This is, it's called the seven-branched prayer, and it's from Shantideva, the Bodhisattva's guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. And it's really quite beautiful. He wrote, like the earth and the pervading elements, 
enduring like the sky itself endures, for boundless multitudes of living beings, may I be their ground and sustenance. For everything that lives, and as far as the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bonds of suffering. For all those ailing in the world, until their every sickness has been healed, may I myself become for them the doctor, nurse, the medicine itself. Raining down a flood of food and drink, may I dispel the ills of thirst and famine. And in the ages marked by scarcity and want, may I myself appear as drink and sustenance. And for sentient beings, poor and destitute, May I become a plentiful treasure and lie before them closely in their reach, varied source of all that they might need. My body thus and all my goods besides and all my merits gained and to be gained, I give them all away, withholding nothing to bring about the benefit of beings. It's an amazing aspiration. that our whole life be dedicated to benefiting others. We may hear this and one at the same time be both tremendously inspired but also it can feel a bit overwhelming. At least it does to me. You know, how could I, knowing the wide range of mixed motives that arise within the mind. This aspiration to totally dedicate oneself to the well-being of others, how could we possibly undertake that? I mean, in one sense, it's very daunting. But I think we can follow the lead of the Dalai Lama in this, because he really pointed the way so I'll just read something he wrote. He said, speaking of my own experience, I sometimes wonder why a lot of people like me. When I think about it, I cannot find in myself any specially good quality, except for one small thing. That is the kind heart, which I try to explain to others and which I do my best to develop myself. Of course, there are moments when I do get angry, but in the depths of my heart, I do not hold a grudge against anyone. I cannot pretend that I am actually able to practice bodhicitta, but it does give me tremendous inspiration. Deep inside me, I realize how valuable and beneficial it is. That is all. This is the Dalai Lama speaking. I cannot really pretend to practice bodhicitta, but I know it's a good idea. <laughs> and that was very reassuring. <laughs> so we plant the seed. You know, we plant the seed of the aspiration. And this is what I see as the ultimate New Year's resolution. Right? The, ult the resolution for the millennium. May my practice, may my life, be for the benefit of all. Yeah, and it would be a wonderful thing 
even just to remind ourselves of that once a day. You know, we plant the seed, we water the seed, we nurture it, and we slowly watch it grow. And even in those times when we're not acting from that place, which will be often, still having planted the seed of that motivation, may my life, may my practice be for the benefit of all, it highlights, it illuminates those actions when we're not coming from that place. And it reminds us that, yes, there might be other possibilities here. And so it guides us in this development, in this path. So all of this is relative bodhicitta. It's the path of compassion, compassionate action. I'd like to spend just a few minutes talking about absolute bodhicitta. Because absolute bodhicitta takes us beyond the notion of self, of other. It takes us beyond separation. Absolute bodhicitta is the free, open, empty nature of the mind itself. It is the very essence of our minds. And in Buddhism, there are many names for this place of freedom. It could be called Buddha nature, it could be called the unconditioned, the unborn, the dharmakaya, the pure heart. Different traditions have different names for it. But they're all pointing to one experience, And this is the experience which we need to recognize in ourselves. Absolute bodhicitta is the mind that is free of any clinging or grasping or fixation or attachment. It's the mind that is unclutched, the mind that is uncontracted, And the Buddha gave a very direct, pointed teaching to this. And if nothing else is remembered from this evening, if just this next teaching of the Buddha's is remembered, you've got it all. Ready? Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Buddha went on to say, whoever has heard this has heard all of the teachings. Whoever practices this has practiced all the teachings. Whoever realizes this has realized all the teachings. Right there. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Not the body, not thoughts, not feelings, not sensations, not emotions, not awareness. The mind freed from grasping, freed from clinging. 
T.S. Eliot expressed it beautifully. He said, a condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. Just imagine for a moment right now, a condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything. The mind that lets go grasping of fixation that is resting in its natural openness, in its natural emptiness. There's a new book out written by a mathematician, Robert Kaplan. The book has a wonderful title and it's a wonderful book. It's a book about zero. And the title of the book is The Nothing That Is. And it's a tremendous analogy for the nature of mind. And the, the opening sentence of the book, look at zero and you see nothing. But look through it and you see the world. The nature of mind, the absolute bodhicitta, is like zero. Nothing to find, nothing to hold on to, no fixation, no solidity, and yet we look through it and see the world. So one more little twist on this. But the nature of mind, this absolute nature of mind, is not only emptiness, it's not only zero, but when the mind is free of delusion, free of contraction, free of fixation, we also recognize the innate wakefulness of the mind, the innate awareness of the mind. There's a very, I think, apt example which describes this movement from delusion to awareness. And the example is ice and water. Ice represents the mind of attachment, the mind of clinging. And it can be clinging to anything, to a thought, to a feeling, to an opinion, to a person, to the body, to a situation, to our jobs, to the next vacation, doesn't matter. The mind that is fixated, contracted, attached, is frozen. That's like ice. It's when we're identified with things and taking them to be self, taking them to be I, it's the creation of the ego. Water represents the nature of the wisdom mind. Unfrozen, unfixated, flowing easily. Now there's one great discovery here. Ice, unfrozen, is water. So what does this mean? It means that freedom, absolute bodhicitta, the very essence, nature of mind, is not some far-off state. It's not that we need to somehow go searching for this thing which is outside of us and maybe in 50 years of arduous practice we'll get a glimpse of it. No. 
the very nature of mind, water, is simply ice unfrozen. And so our practice is simply learning how to relax the grip of clinging, relax the grip of grasping right in this moment. Ice becomes water. Attachment becomes freedom. Do you know the monkey trap that they use in Asia? It's of a coconut, and they hollow out the coconut. There's a little slit in the bottom, and they put some sweet food in it. Monkey comes along, slips its hand in. The opening is big enough for the monkey to slip its hand in. When it's open, not big enough. When it's in a fist, monkey comes along, smells the food. Can't get out. Who's keeping that monkey trapped? Nothing other than the force of its own grasping and clinging. And yet it's a very rare monkey <laughs> that figures out all it has to do is let go. In this state of absolute bodhicitta, of openness, there's a great sense of spontaneity. It's really the mind that's clear, open, empty. And if you think of the people, perhaps, who you think of as being the most enlightened that you know of, you know, for example, somebody like the Dalai Lama, or perhaps others, and we all recognize that very spontaneous, unfrozen quality. And it's so inspiring, so beautiful. It really has the ability, and we see it manifest in him as well as other great beings, of taking oneself very, very lightly. And at the same time, having this enormous care for all beings. I'll just sort of wind up with two short stories about the Dalai Lama. Some years ago, I was at a Buddhist Christian conference at Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky, which is where Thomas Merton lived. And there were a lot of big church dignitaries and Buddhists from different traditions. And when His Holiness came, the Dalai Lama came to the monastery, uh, the monks took him all around. And what they did for livelihood was to make cheese, different kinds of cheeses, and fruitcakes, you know, which they then sold. And so the monks were taking him around, and that evening, the Dalai Lama was giving the talk to the assembled dignitaries. And he was describing the visit and how happy he was to see it all, and he said, you know, as we went around, the monks kept offering me cheese, and I really wanted fruitcake. And he would burst out laughing, and then he'd say again, and they gave me more cheese, and I just wanted the fruitcake. And this is actually being filmed for PBS or something. <laughs> and he was so... taking himself so lightly, you know, in his understanding of his own mind. And it was so completely delightful. The other story is of a conference he was at in Arizona, a big conference at one of these big hotels. The conference was over, and before he left, he asked the hotel management to call together all of the workers in the hotel. Every job in the 
hotel. And they all lined up in the lobby. And before the Dalai Lama went, left, he went down the line and he shook everybody's hand. And if you've ever been with him or people like him, you know that in that moment of contact, it's as if you're the most important being in the world. That's the quality of attention he brings, the quality of care. That's such a beautiful manifestation of the spontaneous caring that comes from the practice of bodhicitta. So here's where it comes together, the merging of the relative and absolute. The more we practice compassionate action, the easier it is to recognize the nature of our minds. The more we recognize the nature of our minds, the more spontaneously compassionate action flows. Sufi poet, mystic Rumi, he's really summed it up. He said, live in the nowhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.